Our scripture for this morning is from the first letter of the Apostle Peter. It's reproduced in your worship folders starting on page 9. If you want to follow along, that's where you'll find it. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This picks up the word elect. Elect according, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctifying in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, so that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him, as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, I'd like to start this morning with a little imagination exercise. Some people are very intimidated by a blank piece of paper, and I'm not actually going to give you this, but pretend I'm putting a piece of paper and a pen into your hand and asking you to describe a person you love. You have two minutes. What would you write on that paper? What kind of language would you use? You might find yourself looking for a lot of nouns and adjectives. If I wanted to describe to you the person I'm married to, Beth, who wasn't able to be with me this morning because she has some, some back trouble, but, but I could describe her like this, and Linda and Andy, Abby and Paul, you know, shout me down if this isn't accurate, but I could say that Beth is a 66-year-old woman Michigan native, a UW alum, a wife, a mother, a teacher. I could say she's godly, but definitely not prim and proper. She's serious, but also capable of biting sarcasm. I know. I could tell you that she's dedicated, hardworking, and hospitable. She's tenacious, morally rigorous, and fiercely loyal in relationships. And I think I just gave you a reasonably accurate picture of Beth in just a little over 50 words. But I could also focus more on verbs. The only verb I used when I was describing Beth was the verb is. But I could also describe Beth by telling you what she does. I could say that she teaches English as a second language, and she often stays up late marking assignments and tracking down plagiarism which her students deny they commit. She usually has guests for dinner at least twice a week and knows how to cook on an institutional scale. She spends several hours each week picking music for church because she loves worship, and she can slay me with a word and has forgiven me for more things than I can count. That's roughly the same number of words, describing the same person, but I think Using verbs paints a more vivid picture because it focuses more on actions, especially actions that are relational, the verbs that have a direct and an indirect object. It's easier for me to see myself in that second picture. This morning, we're studying a passage of scripture that paints a vivid picture of the God we love and the God who loves us. And perhaps more than any other passage in the Bible, if you think about it, it paints a picture of this God as a trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, here's, here's my moment of full disclosure. Last week was Trinity Sunday in the Christian liturgical year. And if you suspect that this is the passage I preached on last week, you'd be right. But that doesn't actually mean this is the same sermon I 
preached last week. I hope the same thing that happened to me over the last week will happen to you, because I've continued to meditate on this passage over the last week, continued to reflect on what it means that God is, that God loves us as a trinity, and the result is that this isn't really the same sermon that I preached last week at all. Last week was kind of my dress rehearsal for this week. Uh, don't tell my own church, but I'm not serving you leftovers. I'm serving you maybe a better meal this week. Um, anyway, I do want to spend some time with you reflecting on sp the specifically and uniquely Christian belief that God is a trinity. According to God's own self-disclosure, God's own emphatic self-revelation to us, God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Point number one of Israel's theology. But God is also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, that puts us in a kind of a strange position, right? I don't know how math teachers feel about it. We're not really saying one plus one plus one is three, but we all are saying that God is a three in one, a mystery that we can't know, that we can't fully understand or explain, but that we believe and confess, because this is how God has made himself known to us, and God wants us to know him in this way. And that means we ought to and we need to reflect on who this God is, on what this God is like, and especially on how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love us. Because if you can say one thing about the Trinity, it's that it's a love, it's a community of love, an empowered community of love. And that, of course, we should also think about how we love God in return. So where do we start? If we want to know God and love God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What kind of language can we find so that we can know God more deeply and worship God more truly? Theologians, I don't know if there's any theologians, professional or amateur here this morning, but theologians have two main ways of talking about the Trinity. This is, uh, I'm kind of mining my seminary education more than 30 years ago now, but they, I, I love these kinds of things. I don't know if you do, but they talk about the ontological or essential Trinity and the economic or functional Trinity. Those words might seem a little weird, so let me explain how theologians do this. The first way tries to understand the Trinity in its essence, in its being. It's more of the nouns and adjectives approach. It asks questions like, what is unique about the Father that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit do not share? It focuses on the characteristics of each member of the Trinity and the internal relations within God's own being. Okay, I've had my moment of full disclosure. Now it's your turn. How many of you read the reflection that's in the bulletin this morning? Okay, this is a good example of this first kind of approach. Pay attention to this language. In keeping with this truth and word of God, which is what Article 7 of the Bel Belgian Confession was talking about, the word of God, the Bible, we believe in one God who is one single essence in whom there are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their 
incommunicable properties, namely Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Lots of nouns and adjectives there, right? I don't want to take anything away from that. There are probably contemplative monks and nuns and a few Christian Reformed systematic theologians that will spend most of their life contemplating these mysteries in this way, and they'll be better for it. Let me tell you about the second approach. It focuses less on what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, and more on the things that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit do, especially in the love-driven work of saving the human race. That's the functional Trinity. This way of talking about the Trinity focuses less on the inner life of the Trinity and more on the love that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit direct outwards towards the world, towards the human race, towards you and me. I'm not ashamed to say that I prefer this second approach because this is mainly how the Bible talks about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is how God has spoken to us about God and how inspired people have written to us about God. The main question this morning's passage wants to answer is not what is the Holy Trinity like? The main question it wants to ask and answer is how does God love you and me as a trinity? How does the Father love us? How does the Son love us? How does the Holy Spirit love us? The heart of this passage is the heart of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't offer us an image for contemplation. It shows us the love of God in action. We can certainly see ourselves in this picture. That's another reason I like this second approach, because when you're just focusing on the essence of the Trinity, there's no room to see yourself in that picture. But the second way allows us to see ourselves as the, the objects of God's love, the ones who receive God's love. But I still want to keep the focus on God, on the God who loves us. Peter starts this starts out in this direction from the very beginning. To those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, who have been chosen in the sanctification or through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. That's both Trinitarian and active using verbs. Peter is showing us how each person, each member, each personality, we struggle to know which is the right word really, each, each member of the Trinity brings or, or relates to us in a particular and unique way. Our relationship with the Father is not the same as our relationship with the Son and our relationship with the Holy Spirit. So let's explore that. Let's take a closer look at what this passage says about the Father who loves us and the Son who loves us and the Holy Spirit. Actually, Peter does it in this order. The Father, the Spirit, and the divine Messiah, Jesus. Peter specifically names, starts with the Father and names the Father three times. But let's pay attention to the verbs, to the way Peter describes God's love 
enacted. Verse 2 says, God foreknew us. That means God had a relationship with us even before we existed. In fact, God created us exactly for that relationship. And all of the Father's efforts to save us, all of the outpourings of his love, the gift of his Son, is so that we will be able to have that relationship, so that we can be God's beloved children. Peter goes on, out of his great mercy, the Father has caused us to be born again into a living hope by raising Jesus from the dead. Think about what that does for us. I'm going to channel Paul for a second here, even though we're reading Peter. In Ephesians 2, Paul's very blunt. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God made us alive in Christ and with Christ. Peter is saying the same thing here, but he's adding this dimension of hope. The dead have no hope. God has given us a living hope. Verse 3, the Father has given us an inheritance and is keeping that inheritance in heaven for us. Who's keeping your inheritance? Who's watching over your investments? How often do you think about how well allocated they are? Do you, you, you check the Dow Jones Industrial Average every day? Do you think about how you're going to get through retirement? Do you worry about things like long-term health care insurance? I think most of us think about things like that. But it doesn't matter how much you have. Everything you have will perish or spoil or fade, or else you'll perish first and leave it behind. Our Father in heaven has in store for us an inheritance that we can't even imagine. This is the kind of hope that Peter's talking about when he says, and so your faith and your hope are in God. It's far beyond anything the world can offer us. Not only that, but in our present lives, right now, not just focus on the future, but focus on right now, God is guarding us, protecting us, watching over us, keeping us safe so that we will be able to receive the fullness of God's salvation when it is revealed. God's not just watching over our bodies as he has through this year of pandemic, and here we are this morning, but God is keeping us safe in the midst of all kinds of spiritual dangers that we often don't even have eyes to see. There is one sort of shadow that passes over this otherwise bright picture of the Father's love, or I think we might think of it as a darker part of the passage. Down in verse 17, Peter reminds us that the Father also judges impartially according to each person's deeds. We don't like judgment, do we? Isn't that kind of a thing people say now? Don't judge me. Usually when we're doing something that we don't want to talk about. Don't judge me. Let's not get the wrong picture of God from this idea of judgment. Let's not imagine God is, is sitting there ready to, to smack people down in judgment if they fail, if they don't get everything right, if they don't live up to everything God asks them to do. Of course, God wants that, but God doesn't condemn us. There's a difference between condemnation and judgment in the New Testament. God doesn't condemn the children of God, but God does judge us. How are we supposed to understand that? Jesus often explained God by talking about real-life situations. Think about parents in this world. If you love your children, I'm sure you're going to tell them when they do well. But you're probably also going to tell them when they don't do so well, and especially 
when they do horribly wrong things, which inevitably do, because that's our human nature. In other words, in some sense, if you're a good parent, you're going to judge your children, not because you want them to feel bad, not because you're looking for a reason to punish them. It's because you want them in the deepest possible sense to be good, not just mind your manners and be on your best behavior, but do things that flow from a good character. And ultimately, if you're raising your children that way, it's not for your sake as a parent. It's not for the peace of all the people around that won't be bothered by your children when they're not good. It's for your child's sake. Because being good is good for human beings. Growing up the right way in the face of God is how, that, that's the real way to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This passage calls up and evokes one of the clearest and most important commands from the Old Testament. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. A version of that also comes out of the mouth of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How should we feel about that? How do you feel about that? I'll be honest. There's hardly a week that goes by where I don't commit and need to confess some pretty serious sin. You know, it might not be bad enough to make the newspapers, but I say words that I shouldn't have said. I think thoughts that I shouldn't have entertained. I do things that I shouldn't have done or fail to do things that I really should have done. And I receive a deep and humiliating reminder that I'm a long way from perfect, that I'm far from holy. But let's go back to this passage and look at the whole picture of love that Peter is painting for us. Let's pay some attention to the work of the Holy Spirit that Peter calls the sanctification or the sanctifying work. That's what the Holy Spirit mainly does, not only has done, but is doing right now in this passage, making God's people holy. It's not the only thing the Holy Spirit does. This passage also tells us that the Holy Spirit speaks through the prophets. The Holy Spirit reveals God's purposes to God's people, things that even have been hidden from the angels. Other passages of scripture talks about how the Holy Spirit empowers gifts in the people of God and forms fruit in the hearts of God's people. But the thing that seems uppermost in Peter's mind in this passage is the work the Holy Spirit does to make us holy, to transform our lives, to reshape our hearts and minds so that we can better and more, sh more fully share in God's grace and God's glory and even, I'm going to get to this a bit later, in God's own being. If I could summarize what Peter says about the active love of the Holy Spirit in a big chunk of this morning's passage, verse 10 through verse 16, I'd put it like this. The Holy Spirit reveals the Father and the Father's love to us, not just so that we can know about the Father, not even just so that we can have a relationship with the Father, but so that as God's children, we can start to bear a family resemblance to the Father so that we can become like the Father, so that we can embody the Father's character in our own hearts and in our life together. As obedient children, Peter says, this is verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all your conduct. This language might remind you a little bit of, again, channeling Paul. What Paul says in Romans 12, stop being conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This transformation is what Peter's talking about here, what he means when he says the sanctification or the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. How does that work work? How does the Holy Spirit transform us? Where does the Holy Spirit work in our lives? I want to point out a pattern that I've noticed in many places in Scripture and that I see in this passage as well. Three things that Peter focuses on, three aspects of our being. In verse 13, he says, preparing your minds for action. Minds. In verse 14, it's a little harder to see in our translation, but it's, it's there in the Greek. Peter's, when he talks about not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, that word passion is usually translated desire, epithumia in Greek. And Peter's talking about the renewing of our desires. It's another of our human faculties, not just thinking and believing, but desiring. Peter's calling us away from the evil desires that have ruled us in the past. And in verse 15, he talks about the things that we do, our conduct, our transformation, in other words, our transformation into the holy children of God happens in our thinking, in our desiring, and in our doing, in our minds, in our hearts, and through our actions, our enacted wills, the things we actually do with our hands. That means... What we fill our lives, what we fill our minds with matters. What we set our hearts on matters. What we do matters. What we spend time thinking about. What we let our desires dwell on. And what we do day in and day out. All of these things are not only habit forming, but they become forming habits. Habits that shape us and mold us. And that can be really bad news or really good news. Because if we fill our heads with good things as the scriptures instruct us to do, if we set our hearts on beautiful and holy things, and if we do righteous things, then by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that can transform us. That can actually make us better than we are. That's how grace operates us. These are the places inside of us, in our human being, in our human nature, where we are either always cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit or resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. The world, we all know this, offers us a marketplace of ideas almost infinite variety of objects of desire. I mean, every time you, you, you go on the internet, you're being exposed to ideas that can form you. You're being exposed to pictures of things that you can desire. The world offers us so many ways in which we can exercise the precious and priceless freedom of will that God has given us, which is one of the things that makes us human. But not all of the ideas out there are good. Not all of the desires that, that come from without or for within 
are healthy. Not all of the things that we're free to do make us free. Which are the ones that make us more holy? Which are the ones that conform us to the image and character of the Father? Which are the ones that the Holy Spirit is urging us toward? Which are the ones that imitate and put us closer to the pattern of Jesus our Savior? I haven't said much about Jesus so far, have I? Because this passage is so Trinitarian, it doesn't seem to spotlight Jesus as much as the New Testament often does, but Jesus is at the center of this passage. It's his sacrifice. It's sprinkling with his blood that makes us holy. It's not explicit and obvious, but this passage has a deeply covenantal theme. If you know the Bible, you can't help seeing the evocation of Exodus chapter 24, when Moses initiates the covenant with the people at Mount Sinai. He sprinkles the blood of the covenant of, on the people. He says two times, the blood of the covenant, the blood of the covenant. And then he reads the book of the covenant, the law, and the people reply, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, we will obey. That's all crammed into verse 2 when Peter says we've been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Moses was only a forerunner. It's really weird to say anything only about Moses, but a greater than Moses was here when Jesus was here. Jesus is the real mediator of the covenant. He's the one through whom we enter into the covenant relationship with God. He's both human and divine, the one who's both able to bring God to us and, and God's love to us and bring us to God and us into God's love. Peter doesn't spell this out in a lot of abstract theological language, but once again, we see it in the verbs. We see it in action, in pictures. That makes sense to me because that's actually how Peter came to know Jesus, and that's how Peter came to know God as a trinity. The Belgic Confession, Article 8, didn't one day drop into onto Peter's desk. Oh yeah, Peter learned through actions and events that he was part of. Peter gradually realized from the things he saw that Jesus was no mere human being. Peter was in the boat with Jesus when Jesus said to the, to the wind and the waves, be still, and they were still. And he asked, what kind of human being is this? Peter was on the mountain when Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus. And then the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him, obey him. Peter may have been the most astonished person on earth on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit descended on him and he learned about the Holy Spirit that way by being transformed from the coward who denied Jesus to the preacher who spoke boldly and publicly in the same city where Jesus had so recently been arrested to the same Jewish crowd and said, let me explain this to you. What you're witnessing is God pouring out the Holy Spirit he promised. And this Jesus, the, yes, the same Jesus whom you crucify, he's the one that God has declared to be both the Lord and the Messiah. In other words, I'm proclaiming that he truly is the Son of God. So Peter knows about the descended divine majesty of God the Son. He doesn't talk about it the same way the Apostle John does. In the beginning was the word. What he focuses on here is not the descending majesty of Jesus, but the ascending 
a representative humanity of the Son of God, drawing the human race into the life of the Trinity. Peter portrays Jesus as the one whose incarnated life was for us. Again, pay attention to the verbs in this passage. He was chosen before the creation in the world, and that's why we're also chosen. We're chosen in him. He was revealed in time in these last days for our sake, so that by believing in him, we might be saved and have salvation. He was sacrificed for us, raised for us, glorified for us, so that we might become sacrifices to God with him, so that we might be raised from the dead with him, so that we might share in his glory when it's revealed. And it was revealed to the prophets of old that the Messiah would endure suffering and then glory would follow. And Peter's revealing to us that anyone who follows Jesus will suffer with him, but glory will follow. And in all of this, we're being drawn through Christ, through imitation of Christ, and through participation in the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, deeper and deeper and deeper into the life and love of the Holy Trinity. I always like a little homework when I worship and when I hear a sermon. I always take the worship folder home with me and read the passages again and go through the hymns again. But here's one more thing that isn't in the bulletin. Peter again writes another letter. Second Peter, we call it. In chapter 1, he says something even more astonishing. But by God's grace, through his very great promises, we have become partakers of the divine nature. That's how close of an encounter we have with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We go deep and deep and deep into the love and the being of God. And as that happens, we're so transformed. And God's desire is that the life of the Trinity will ultimately be reflected in us. So that's what's going on. That's what God invites us to, to participate in the divine nature. What, I mean, that sounds a little scary, but think about it. We actually do it all the time. What happens when you pray? You come to the Father who has been enthroned since before the foundation of the world. You come into that throne room. You come in the power of the Holy Spirit and through the high priestly intercession of the one who has both a human and a divine nature, Jesus the Messiah. That's participation in the life of the Trinity. When you read the Bible, when you listen to the words that the Father revealed to the Son for our sake, that the Son, the Word made flesh, spoke to us, revealed to us when he was in the world. And when those words are illuminated in our souls by the Holy Spirit in a way that kindles in us faith and hope and love, you're participating in the life of the Trinity. When we worship, when we come to the Lord's table, pay attention to how Trinitarian the communion liturgy is. We're rising into the everlasting life and love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We come as children of God, not only ransomed from our sin by the sacrifice of Jesus, but assured by the Holy Spirit that we are children of the Heavenly Father who chose us before the foundation of the world. And there's one other way, and I'm going to end with this, one other way that we can participate in the life of the Holy Spirit. In 
not just in the essence of the Trinity, but in the function, in the action of the Trinity by embodying the love of the Trinity. We participate in the love of God by loving one another as the Father has loved us, by urging one another deeper and deeper into the holy life of God, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and bearing with one another and forgiving one another just as in Christ God forgave us. This is how we image the life of the Trinity to a world that doesn't know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is how we enact the love of the Trinity in our midst. And friends, I think this is where the church has either most spectacularly succeeded through the centuries or most spectacularly failed. When we get this right, it's an incredible testimony to the grace of God. But when we fail to love, when we fail to forgive, when we fail to desire the betterment of one another, when we're full of resentment and competition, we're not living into the life that God invites us into. God doesn't want us, I mean, in some real functional level, God wants to be an icon of the Father. The church is an icon of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and their outward directed love. But more than that, here's, here's the last thing from, from Peter's treasury I'm gonna leave with you. If you read on into this letter we're reading this morning, chapter two, it says, all of us, like living stones, are being built into a temple where God is at home. So this is what God has in mind for us, that we, the church, are built together in the love and grace of God into an everlasting home for God. Practically the last words that God speaks in the Bible is in Revelation 21 when a loud voice comes from the throne and the voice says, now the home of God is with human beings. God will be with them. He will be their God and they will be his people. This is what Peter has in his mind and in his heart and his soul when he concludes this passage by saying, and so your faith and your hope are in God because God's love is in you and you are in God's love and in God's heart. Let's pray together. Words are never enough, O oh God, to declare your love or to express our thanks. But we need to say these words. Thank you, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, for the way you have loved mere human beings and sinful human beings and lifted us up into your glory and called us into an inheritance that will be ours forever. Thank you for making us your children. Thank you for letting us be your sisters and brothers, Lord Jesus. Thank you for condescending to live in us and among us, Holy Spirit. Help us to respond, we pray, 
by cooperating with your grace and embodying your love in a way that brings glory to you and does good to your people here in the church and out there in the world you loved enough to send your son into. We pray these things in his name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.